Hi, welcome to Starboard Vineyard Tours, a new podcast from the team that brought you higgledy piggledy whale statements. Uh, I'm Mark. I'm Ben, and I, I think it's kind of adorable to call us the team that brought you higgledy piggledy whale statements. I think it's true. Well, look, I. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Thank it's you. true. Uh, it is technically true. It's just I wasn't expecting it. This is a uh, science fiction studies or science fiction criticism podcast. I'd, I'd say science fiction uh. studies. I think it's fair to say that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something about that that almost... I don't know. Uh, it, it feels like a strange thing to apply to this particular book. Um, or this particular essay. For some reason. I mean, but no, you're right. It is science, science fiction, fiction studies. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> That's taking... very true. Uh, this is actually very briefly, because, you know, this is something I want to do professionally. It's something I want to do academically, and uh, it's what I'm working on right now. And very early on in grad school, I uh, surprised a professor, someone I really, really admire and really like, uh, Tim Yu, um, by specifically uh, referencing, like, fandom scholarship in the same breadth as, like, academic scholarship. But to be clear, because I was saying, and the Phantom Scholarship is kind of weak in these ways, he was like, yeah, that was that was very interesting. You just treated them as the same thing, but like critically rather than just totally absorbing it. So my sense of science fiction studies is everything written about science fiction, just a lot of it is bad. Yeah, so that I think is a little bit of why I was like, oh, do we call it that? Do we call it criticism? Because I think that, like... That's not always the case with every academic field that has studies on the end. Oh no, ab- absolutely. And I'm Although, sure Although, you know, I I do think that when it comes to gender studies, there is a very broad acceptance of basically anything anyone wrote about gender. So, I guess in what is technically <laughs> my field or the field that I did in undergraduate that had the word studies attached to the end. Um. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like, studies is the most generic term, right? Yeah, I I think I'm coming around to that perspective. Um, And I appreciate The thing is that it's not... So so we're talking today about an essay by uh, Samuel R. Delaney, um, and I think Delaney's, or at least the, the... You know how, like, on... Oh my god, I'm completely wrong. What? Okay, so what I was about to say is that you know how on the back of a book sometimes, a nonfiction book, there'll be printed, like, the topic or genre of the book? Yeah, You know? And and often there, like, the type of, uh, you know, academic field it is will be what that is? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, I thought that it said, like, science fiction criticism there, but no. What it says is literary studies... Cultural theory. So yeah, yeah. I have it, to throw everything I was saying out the window. <laughs> the next line Immediately. is... Immediately. The next line is, an indispensable work of science fiction criticism revised and expanded. So I think we both have the same edition. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, because this edition, is like the most yeah. recent one. Yeah, we in order to get older editions, we... I mean, they're, they were published in like yeah. the 70s. Yeah. So it would have been pretty unlikely for those to fall into our hands. Anyways, um, welcome to our Samuel R. Delaney uh, criticism fan podcast. Right. So uh, our our intention with this podcast is to talk about different works of science fiction studies. Writ broadly. Um, and also maybe just works of science fiction. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's yeah. a lot of different things people have written and said about science fiction, some of which are more academic and some of which aren't. 
Yep. And we're interested in all of them. Yeah, and it bleeds over into other genres as well. Um, you know, obviously, science fiction and fantasy, they're often uh, bundled together now, and they're very closely related. A lot of theorists will have strong opinions about how and whether they're separate, uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. And yeah, I would like to, um, you know, we're starting a podcast, so we are making decisions as we go. I would like to have us do things like read a particular book that emphasizes or involves the theory, if we can find a good one for it. Uh, because I think that would be a fun thing to do alongside this. Yeah, no, it would totally make sense to uh, read a book or an essay or whatever type of, uh, you know, academic work we want to read, and then read something that you can think about with the thing that we already read. Yeah. Um, uh, <sighs> and... That is kind of the goal with this podcast, you know, I think a lot of people enjoyed um, kind of us uh, guiding them through reading Moby Dick, and now we want to guide people through reading science fiction and science just, fiction Just things. generally, generally science fiction. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. think it's true, and I also think that uh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in the sort of, um, you know, more academic or more, uh, I mean niche, I guess, uh, parts of science fiction studies that is, are really useful to a reader of science fiction that can make for really interesting uh, in interesting thinking and can also be really useful tools for approaching works of science fiction and fantasy and well, the whole, the, the body of things that I would call literatures of estrangement, but that's because I'm a huge dork, of uh, literature that's not about our world, but is about some other world. Um, I think that's yeah. something that bears thinking about yeah and and um the uh the essay that we're gonna talk about in detail today is is kind of about like describing what science fiction is mm -hmm. like as compared to other types of writing other types of literature yeah now we'll get a lot of those um, defining what is science fiction compared to other literature is like 50% of science fiction studies in the same way that, uh, as I understand, if you ask a, a game studies person to define a game, it's basically like sniping them. They're just going to be sort of frozen in place for a while as they as they uh, yeah. assemble their theoretical de uh, construct. I think a lot of fields have the sort of challenge of like defining what our field is about. Oh, and yeah. also, I think a lot of people in fields that have that problem are like, it doesn't matter. We've discussed this to death. Let's talk about other things. <laughs> it's, like, it's you say that's like 50%... Of... No, yeah, go on. You say it's like 50% of the field, uh, and that like chills me to the bone. I'm like, that can't be true. I don't think it is true. But at the same time, it comes up often enough that it feels that way. Okay, okay, no. It's 50% of the field if you include defining subgenres. Oh, God. I just, the way you're talking about this, I'm worried that it's going to make people think that the stuff we're discussing is boring and is just always the same. And that's not true. No, no. These are totally different, often completely incompatible frameworks for what is a science fiction. And they'll be looking at the same book and saying, this is science fiction because, and having completely different understandings of it. No, it is, I find it endlessly fascinating, which is why I have shackled myself to this wheel. Yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> do you want to describe, because, I mean, uh, we have, we both have, I guess, some degree of, uh, like, background in talking about this. Um, yeah, yeah. 
do you want to talk about what where you're coming from? Uh, sure, I, I can. Of, I can briefly. I don't talk know. Almost materially. <laughs> I don't think this is. I think this is historically. Well, you got a job. I think this is historically more than it is materially. This is like describing my my trajectory towards this. But yes. Uh, okay, sure. And also, my my job does not actually involve science fiction. My research involves science fiction. My job involves teaching like uh, intro to college comp and stuff like that. But no, okay, I am okay, okay. I am currently a graduate student in a uh, literary studies program, the literary studies program at uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison, which is also my hometown. So that's been very convenient. So I actually did not study uh, English or literature. I did as a minor in undergraduate. It's actually Mark here who really got me into science fiction studies um, and like looking seriously at science fiction. I think it was uh, Do Metaphors Dream of Literal Sleep um, was the book that you like pointed me at that uh, had a big impact on me. Although I think I only read it in like full or even really insignificant part years later. But you really pointed me at the idea that this was a serious field of study, and now, many years later, I've ended up in a graduate program where that is what I'm doing. I'm currently in the dissertating phase, so I'm writing my uh, PhD thesis on science fiction, actually, on defining the difference between science fiction and fantasy in particular ways. I promise it's not just rehashing previous things, which is why I was so defensive of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's true. No, I... I, I wholeheartedly agree that the way you are talking about the boundaries of these genres is interesting. And, uh, you know, when you have your dissertation written, um, I'm like, I've always enjoyed talking about these ideas with you. I'm always excited to read your writing. Thank you. Uh -huh. uh, but so, yeah, I'm I'm working on a thing about that. Uh, some of the authors I'm most interested in writing about in the long run are... Uh, I mean, Gene Wolfe, which is probably not a surprise to anyone who's listened to the podcast. I'm sure I've mentioned him a few times. Um, but also, uh, uh, Susanna Clark's Piranesi is probably going to be in my dissertation. Um, Charles Hughes' How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Uh, Zelazny's Lord of Light is in the same chapter as the Gene Wolfe. There's, there's a wide variety of things. And I'm, something I'm really interested in is I would really like to talk about science fictional books that are good, like that have even have had major impact, but aren't part of the set of books that science fiction studies people often talk about. Because in the same way that there's a literary canon and there's a science fiction canon, there's sort of a literary criticism of science fiction canon of, okay, we can kind of assume people in this field have read this book and know about it, and therefore it's a useful example. But I would really like to take up the challenge of talking about things that haven't been talked about, if only to expand the scope of, like, examples people use in these things. Yeah. Um, I, an, an admirable goal. Thank you. Um, also, it means I get an excuse to talk about the books I'm personally obsessed with. It's mostly <laughs> that, being honest. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, who isn't doing that in academia, really? Uh, I've met I, them, uh, and they're sad. I've met them, and they're well, sad. Well, yes. I'm uh, not... I, I am not, like, uh, currently working in an academic field. Um, as you could guess from what he said, Ben and I went to college together, and um, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on, um, like, science fictional modes of reading. And uh, that is something that, in large part, was was inspired by Do Metaphors Dream of Literal Sleep by So Young Chu, uh, like Ben mentioned, but also by the writing of Samuel R. Delaney, uh, like we're going to talk about today. Um, he was also really influential on what I wrote uh, in college. 
Um, and it's been something that I have like read in and thought about ever since then. Um, even though, uh, I haven't, I'm not really, a, I, I'm not really writing at this time. I'm podcasting. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's me. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're also both, you know, we didn't mention this, maybe we thought it was obvious, but the two of us are, uh, lifelong readers of science huge fiction, dorks. like literature. Like, like not yeah, just readers like, of it, but huge dorks about it. Uh, we met through the science fiction club in college. We both ended up, yep. uh, co-chairs of that together, um, for like a year we and worked, a half. We both worked, uh, extensively on running that science fiction club's convention, <laughs> Um, uh, bad uh, memories. College. Anyways, uh, <laughs> <laughs> some good ones too. No, no, um, plenty of good ones. I, uh, it's just college science fiction clubs are a, a more ass at best. I think is a way I describe them. Yeah, if you're in college right now and you're considering joining some kind of club, or you have joined some kind of club, that's probably where you are at this point in the year. Um, on the one hand, I would encourage you to do that because it can be a really fun and productive way of meeting people. But have uh, friends hand, outside would... of the club. Yeah, don't, uh, don't try to make any singular part of college social life the entirety of your life. Yeah. Uh, because that's, uh, that, I mean, that is putting all your eggs in one basket. Yep. Yep. Anyways, now that we've had um, this odd trip down memory lane. <laughs> Um, do we want to talk about why our podcast is called what it's called? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Do you want to take um, the lead on this one? Yeah, happily. So, Starboard Vineyard Tours, uh, this is a an allusion to the title of one of Delaney's books of criticism, Starboard Wine, which is not actually the book that holds the essay we're talking about today. Yeah, no, it is It is very great... funny to me that we're, we're starting with Delaney, which is where we got the name. Mm-hmm. But we're starting with Delaney's first volume of criticism and, like, some of his earliest criticism. And starboard wine is a term from, like, his later criticism. It's just, it's very, uh, we tried. <laughs> I, okay, I don't think okay, it's Okay, that just was a little mean. Tried. That was a little mean. No. But no, no, you're totally right. It is a little funny. But, okay, so what is starboard wine? Um, this is something he talks about in the introduction uh, to starboard wine. Um, which, as Ben says, was written a little later than what than the essay we'll talk about today, because this introduction was written in 1980. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, basically, he's he's describing um, in the introduction a lot of his uh, different, like, kind of summarizing many of his ideas about science fiction. Um, but towards the beginning of the essay, he describes uh, this anecdote about um, taking a ride on the Staten Island ferry. Uh, where a friend of his explains to him that um, boats have a red light on their port side and a green light on their starboard side, so other por- other boats can tell like which side they're presenting to them or what direction they're going. A uh, quick thing for um, the benefit of uh, people who did not listen to the Moby Dick podcast. Uh... Boats whose uh, port and starboard are left and right, but only oriented in the direction the boat's uh, bow is pointing, so that you can, you know, even if you're facing backwards, and you're, it's basically, it's like stage left and stage right, but it's boat left and boat right. Yes, that's correct. Great. Um, so, uh, so he has this, this conversation with a friend on the ferry, uh, and learns this mnemonic uh, to remember which light is on which side of the boat port wine is red. Um, But then in the second half of this anecdote, 
years later, on a Polish freighter to Rotterdam, um, Delaney continues the story. Uh, and now I'm just going to read directly from the book. Um, this is, in, in case you happen to have a copy of uh, Starboard Wine with you, um, this is on pages, uh, well, pages Roman numeral 18 to 19, at the end of the second introduction. The Atlantic is a lonely shield of water. At sea you are continually struck, on those days when no other object is visible, by the fact that, this close to the Earth's surface, you will never see more of a single substance. But, as happens even on the lonely Atlantic, one evening at sundown, for perhaps half an hour, here and there, about the horizon's aluminum, above that gunmetal shield, five other ships were in view at one time. Two showed a red light. Three showed a green. And I gained some admiring remarks by explaining to my fellow passengers with me that evening on deck which ships were showing us their starboard flank, and which were showing their port side, and consequently we were able to tell which direction each ship was moving in relation to us, although I am incidentally severely dyslexic, which doesn't mean I can't read, only that I have no natural sense of left and right. But I would tell you this. During the entire evening and explanation, the oversweet taste and dead blood color of port never entered my mind. What facilitated the explanation for me that evening on the deck was a purely mental construct the memory of a liquor conceived years before, first put together in silence that night on the ferry with my friend, from an entirely different fermentation process. A distillate the hue of a beacon, the color of a spring leaf paled by fog. And, although it has never been decanted and does not, certainly, exist, it is of a different bouquet, of a different vintnerage, and of an entirely different draft. So, yeah. So... <laughs> He's kind of using starboard wine as the concept of starboard wine, this imaginary green wine, um, as like uh, a, a way of showing, you know, a science fictional, uh, a science fictional like language. Really, um, I was about to say like concept or idea, but I think from his perspective, it really would be language. You hear the phrase starboard wine, and it's something that definitely doesn't exist. Yeah, um, and that I think it. It's also um, a, uh, a demonstration of the way he wants to argue science fictional language can affect the mind or shape the way you're thinking. It allows for a, in this case, a mnemonic, but also it allows for an image, an idea that arises that doesn't have a, a relation in the world, except we can, we sort of infer it into these various relations by the fact that it, you know, it fits into the world in a certain way. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so if Starboard Wine is science fiction, uh, we hope to guide you through that different bouquet, different vintnerage, and entirely different draft. That's our goal. Uh, we're the tour guides. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, um, speaking of particular drafts... Uh, uh, yeah, so do we want to talk about um, our uh, the, the actual essay we're discussing today? About yep. 5,750 words. Yeah, no, it's uh, which not Which is the that title long. of the essay. <laughs> you didn't let me do the joke. Um, but yeah. Uh, oh. No, it is It is really funny how often during setting up this episode we had problems because, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, we should we should read this essay. It's, um, it's about 5,750 words. 
And Mark goes, I, yeah, no, I guess that's a reasonable length. It was basically an Abbott and Costello bit. Yeah, no, we, we absolutely got tricked by the joke of this title. Um, uh, yeah. I don't think we ever did the real badumptish version, which would be you saying, yeah, uh, or, or me asking, what's the essay about? And you saying, oh, yeah, about 5,750 yeah, 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 yeah. words. <laughs> that one would be a little bit obvious because, yeah, anyways, it's it's very goofy as a title, honestly. Um, it makes sense in context. Yeah. It's also, um, just looking at the uh, index to the book, it's, uh, gr- quote, Grout of a talk presented at the Modern Language Association meeting in New York, December 27th, 1968. Uh, so this is a originally from 1968. It's some of his earliest uh, science fiction criticism, um, or at least the earliest, some of the earliest science fiction criticism he, you know, collects and uh, republishes. Um and at this point in time, uh, Delaney would have, I think, already have started being a successful science fiction author. Yeah, because uh, so far we've actually only talked about him as uh, a, a theorist, a critic, but he actually is a uh, Hugo and Nebula award-winning science fiction author. Yes, and this um, this would have been published two years after he won the Nebula for Babel 17 in 1966. And then won it again the next year for the Einstein intersection in 1967. Yeah, uh, I think it is fair to call Delaney uh, one of the greats of the field. Oh no, absolutely. He's um, he's one of the major writers of the new wave of science fiction, which is occurring in the late 60s uh, through mid-70s, I guess. Uh, nobody quote me on that. Um, and so he's this major figure. He's in the same sort of generation as Le Guin. And I'd argue Gene Wolfe is in there as well, coming out of or after the sort of golden age of science fiction, which, frankly, you look back on, you're like, I feel like that was a bit of an overstatement, uh, since I have a personal preference for the new wave. Um, and it's this moment of experimentation in style and form. Um, we'll, we'll get to Delaney's thoughts on that in a second. Um, and it's this moment of... Um, a bunch of new authors or younger authors sort of challenging a lot of the assumptions and standards of the uh, Astounding Stories, Gernsback, Campbell era of science fiction. Uh, yeah. Probably also worth mentioning, this is a period of a lot of, uh, a lot of science fiction authors who aren't white guys. Um. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's... Uh, the the recognition of um, people of color, women, uh, people of you know, transgender people, um, all kinds of uh, marginalized groups, um, their recognition within science fiction, as within you know most literary fields, uh, has been a, a hard fought battle over the past several decades and, and continues to be a struggle. Um, Especially, like, directly against uh, reactionary people who think science fiction should stay white. Yep, yep. I, um, I don't think we need to That wasn't the... solved with a new wave. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't saying it was. All I was saying, you know, and you can, I, I know. there's some great writing by Delaney about being a uh, gay black man writing science fiction in the 60s. Um, although, uh, some of that he was... Uh, actually, no, I think he was pretty open about all of it from pretty early on. He's, he's also known for writing uh, uh, gay erotica, uh, memoirs, um, he did film for a while, he wrote for film. Uh, you could, I don't know if he's done music, I feel like he must have, because at one point I, the, the line uh, I heard Yes, is... actually. <laughs> according, according to Wikipedia, 
Delaney played and lived communally for five months on the Lower East Side with the Heavenly Breakfast, a folk rock band. Yeah, no, absolutely unsurprising. Basically the only, like medium of art that isn't a plastic art so that isn't like sculpture and look if Delaney's done sculpture I would not be surprised but the only one that I am pretty sure he doesn't do is poetry which is wild like that is a huge surprise when I found it out so it's something worth mentioning um and the reason that I know this is that he had uh someone else um who does write poetry do the poems in Babel 17 a novel about a poet in, you know, and a whole science fiction space adventure. So yeah, no, Delaney's a really interesting guy on, like, basically every level. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, by the way, in case people have assumed from the fact that he was, like, active in the mid-century, he's, he's still living. Um, yeah. And I, I believe he's still writing, although, um, like... I don't okay, know how so much he's writing full-on novels. There was a uh, really good... He got an award of some sort, I want to say, a couple of years ago. It was mid-pandemic, so this, so the award uh, acceptance speech was broadcast. And I think it's still up online. And I've transcribed a bunch of it for my own like academic writing, because he said some wild shit in there. But one thing he said is that he was not actually feeling up to writing fiction anymore. That he felt that as he's gotten older, his... Uh, his capacity for holding in his mind all the things he wants to hold when he writes fiction is uh, has decreased. I don't know if he still feels that way. It's also possible that, like, pandemic isolation was getting to him like it was to everyone else. Um, but I don't... So, Ben, un yeah? unfortunately, I went to go look at awards he's received and be like, which awards might he have... What, what might he have received uh, mid-pandemic that you could be talking about? Turns out there are four significant awards he received in 2021 and 2022. Yeah, no, look, I I will try and find that particular thing so people can listen to the speech if they're interested, because he says some incredible things in there, especially about, like, um, like, he gives a bunch of reasons why I write science fiction, and one of them is absolutely jaw-dropping, which is that he says that all given world fiction, that is to say, you know, or zero world fiction, fiction about this world is inherently about either slavery or madness. And as he's not interested in either of those, he writes science fiction. And, and he goes on to defend this yeah. position quite effectively, but also he absolutely writes about slavery and madness in, like, a number of his novels. So it's an incredible tongue-in-cheek line. Yeah, no, he... The, you say that, like, this um, this acceptance speech is, like, incredible, and that's true, but it's not the kind of incredible where you're like, oh my god, every single word is transparently truth. It's more like, oh my gosh, like, what does he mean by that? That's a wild thing to say. Yeah, no, and then he goes on to means, explain it, and it means something significant, but you're also just kind of sitting there gobsmacked, like, wow, nobody else thinks or talks like this guy. You know, Delaney really is a... Uh... He is one of a kind. He is, uh, I mean, I think he is technically a grandmaster of science fiction. That's like an actual award you can get. And if he doesn't have it, it is a travesty and he should. I just. Yep. No, he's a. Yep. Cool. Cool. He's a Sifwa grandmaster. Yep. Ah, uh, yeah. No, I do think it's really great that it's, you can be like a Jedi in science fiction. You'd be a grandmaster <laughs> of science fiction. They don't give you a ceremonial sword as far as more, or even a ceremonial ray gun, but they should. <laughs> um yeah so i feel like that's about enough contextualization about delaney himself i don't know do you feel that there's more we should talk about 
No, I think it'll come up. Like, I think the only other thing I'd want to mention is that uh, Delaney does have his, like, stable of writers he talks about, a lot of whom are his, like, sh- near contemporaries, people writing just a little bit ahead of him, like Zelazny. Um, you know, they write, they overlap a ton. A- actually, um, Creatures of Light and Darkness, Zelazny's giant, sprawling, weird uh, Egyptian mythology science fantasy, only got published because Delaney heard it existed as, like, a notes file of Zelazny's, went to Zelazny's publisher, and badgered him into badgering Zelazny into publishing it. So, uh, Delaney's an, a, a character who is, like, deeply, uh, involved in the history of science fiction. He doesn't just, like, write about it and publish it, but he's, like, actively part of the community and doing his thing this whole time. Yeah. Sorry, I just love that anecdote. It's, it's such a thing. It is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um... Yeah, no, and if you if you want to know more about Sam Delaney, there's plenty of ways to read about that. So we should we should probably move on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so the the essay we're talking about about five thousand seven hundred and fifty words. Um, basically, it's an essay on. I mean, it is an essay on what science fiction is, um, and specifically about the the type of language from which science fiction is constituted. Yeah. And would you say it's very long? Do you think that's a... Would you say it's very long? How, lo- how long do you think it is? <sighs> it's about 5,750 words. Are you satisfied? Yes, yes, I'm satisfied. Anyways, yeah, no, it is about science fictional language. And generally, Delaney is, um, I mean, he doesn't often explicitly reference the kind of uh, linguistic turn, uh, like Derrida-era, um, like... Uh, literary theorists and philosophers that he's very clearly read and absorbed. Like, uh, he has a footnote in this where he says, uh, I am purposely not using the word symbol in this discussion. The vocabulary that must accompany it generates too much confusion. So he's he is writing for a general audience of science fiction readers and writers. And so he kind of does a bit of a magic trick where he's hiding a ton of influences that you can tell he's drawing on if you recognize them, though I am certain I could not name them all or even, like, specify a lot of them. It's not really my field. But he is very much the, like, there's a thing called the linguistic turn, and he is that for science fiction. He is a one-man linguistic turn. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that he's writing in 1968, which is... um you know, uh, when a lot of like yeah, it's during uh, the linguistic modern term. theory. Yeah, it is like that's that's going on. Yeah, yeah, in, he is uh, mainstream literary studies, mainstream philosophy, uh, yeah. mainstream history. He is not arriving. A lot of fields. Yeah, exactly. He's not arriving with it like later and bringing it to science fiction. He is doing it at the same time as this larger movement, uh, just in science fiction. Yes, and also. Um, Remind me, what did, uh, what did, how, you said 5,750 words started as an address to who again? Uh, it was, um, um, let me, give me a second, give me a second. Uh, the Modern Language Association meeting in New York. So, Mm, um, so not actually like a, uh, not like a science fiction convention or something, um, which is where many of his essays come from, is like writing, speaking at conventions, writing in science fiction magazines. Um, but it's of interest uh, that he was speaking at the Modern Language Association meeting. So he was speaking to, like, uh, 
the the literary community, but also clearly like he he is clearly he he's one of um you know he's he's speaking to different audiences on different levels at the same time. Um, I should and, I should mention uh, uh, the linguistic uh, the linguistic turn dates from Sasser in uh, nineteen sixteen, so it had. The, the idea has, or that's where it's often pointed to in the humanities. I just wanted to say that because he does explicitly name check Saussure in, I, I may be pronouncing that wrong. I, I, I'm not I, I think it's so sure. So sure. Cool. He, he expressly notes so sure in this essay. And that's the only uh, thinker that I think he name checks. Yeah. Well, and he does it very um, uh, indirectly. Oh yeah. No, should, it's, it's... should we explain maybe... Yeah, Can we explain the actual argument? Yeah, of no, the essay? We, we should, we should. I've just gotten caught up in trying to place it like historically and like what the influences are, and that's really not useful for our readers. I'm sorry, listeners, readers. Eh. Well, no, it's useful. We just have done a bit of contextualization. <laughs> that's fair. So, that's fair. Um, <sighs> so the the argument, um, I could just kind of go through the summary that we've got. Yeah, sure. I can jump in if I see something worth pointing out. So he starts out uh, staking the pretty, like, uh, dramatic claim that there's no such thing as the content of a piece of fiction in a way that is, like, divisible from the form. Yeah, he said, um, he specifically so he, says, put in opposition to style, there is no such thing as content. Like, there's no style content division. Yes, and, and his claim here ultimately is that the specific words that are chosen, the specific order that they are placed in... Um, has an, uh, each, like, change in that has some influence on the actual meaning that the words communicate and the way that people understand them. And um, I think there's also... So he's not actually... Sorry, go on. He's not actually saying that literally any change in style, any change in wording, like, uh, completely changes the meaning of a sentence, right? Because that's clearly not true. Um, but he is saying that, like... Uh, whatever we perceive from writing, it's built up by each word. Yeah. Each word is a part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost an ontological claim. It's almost a claim about, like, the essence of language. He is saying there is nothing... There's nothing behind words. There's stuff built on top of them. The information... And he likes the word information. He specifically focuses... He says, let's not talk about content. Let's talk about information. Um, the information you get from reading is only acquired through those words, and it's built up out of them. So any change of wording is a little bit of a change in the information because the information's only made of words. That might not be a crucial change. You may still get the general feeling, but he also gives some examples, some sort of uh, uh, exaggerated examples of like, if you've got a um, a murder confession in a novel and you drop the word or introduce the word not in the phrase, I did it, or I did not do right. it, or things like that, um, that completely changes the novel. And so you can't set aside the idea that a single word could. It becomes a question of what is the information these words communicate and that there isn't anything outside of words. It's all made up of words. And that's why I say it's like a, it's an argument about the essence of it because it's not just like, oh, well, you know, the information is changed by how it's communicated. No, the information is words. All you are reading are words. 
Yeah, um, there's a there's a, a a way that he talks about it that like each word we hear um, makes like a picture in our mind, um, which is a claim he takes to a kind of extreme degree. Yeah, we we need to talk through the... his uh, his little doctrine of corrections. There, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, all right, that's the idea that like any fiction, any literature, um, are are. Uh, the, the what we understand from it is made from the words that it is um so then science fiction word by word develops different pictures in our heads than other types of fiction um is his his big claim about science fictional language yeah well his his claim um, is that because everything is constructed of words because any any piece of writing is words any difference of any meaningful difference between uh you know genres of writing is linguistic, that it occurs at the level of language, and that therefore the difference between science fictional writing and given world writing, you know, writing about whatever you want to call it, there's a ton of different ways of saying it, and he uses multiple of them in the essay, whatever you want to call it, it is strictly speaking different language than science fiction. Science fiction is writing differently, and that's a language level yeah. thing. So science fiction is a style. It's not a content because there is no such thing as content. There is only style. Yes. And uh, this is where he gets into like something that I think you could call like the big key term that comes out of this essay. It's definitely the uh, easiest subject- one to use. Like it's the easiest one to take yes. from this. Yes. And that, that, that word is subjunctivity. Um, by which he means... So this is where... What Delaney actually defines it as is subjunctivity is the tension on the thread of meaning that runs between, to borrow Socher's term from term for word, sound image and sound image. So let's unpack that. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Do you want to describe? So I, I sorry, go on. So like, I don't think we want to start with the grammatical part of it, although it is like useful for explaining what he means. Um, we should probably start with examples. But I, yeah, well, uh, I, I think going ahead to ha- the the actual, yeah, the genres that he talks about in this way, I yeah. think would be useful. Um, so, like, what he means by the thread of meaning running between sound image and sound image, it ultimately, like, it's sort of like the type of meaning that is being communicated by these words. So, uh, he contrasts uh quote naturalistic fiction yeah that's as the term something that co- something that could have happened yeah he's... fantasy fantasy from his perspective is something that could not have happened and science fiction is uh the language communicates something that has not happened yes um, and, and i think we should mention each that of these... these sorry may i i think we should yeah, go ahead. mention that these are presented very grammatically this is presented as like this is a mood a tense of the language itself so um when you're reading something you can't point to a specific detail in a sentence necessarily that makes it this uh particular subjunctivity um whether or not something could have happened or uh could not have happened or has not happened isn't something that an individual sentence will necessarily tell you every time, but that collectively is a linguistic quality. And he gives some examples of sentences that can be interpreted in multiple subjunctivities when you separate them out from the larger body of words. 
Yeah, yeah. He has examples of sentences like uh, one that he, I don't think, uses in this essay, but that he uses in some later ones, and it's very instructive, is her world exploded. Yeah, um, technically he uses which a version has, of that. He says uh, he has this longer sentence that includes the phrase her world shattered, but because it's longer and a little bit clunkier, he clearly refines it in later essays to just her world exploded. Yes, and, and you know, the point there being... Um, that's a sentence that makes perfect sense in either a naturalistic slash mundane given world, etc. Uh, piece of fiction or a science a piece of science fiction. Um, but the the scope of what it might mean could be completely different. Yeah, his, um, his you could favorite... literally have you could literally have a, a a woman who owns an entire planet and then the planet is destroyed. Yeah, um, versus. Someone whose who's perspective on life is destroyed. Now, I always personally uh, feel that her world exploded. Uh, Delaney does a little bit, uh, he protests too much when he insists that the phrase, her world exploded, implies that she owns the world. Like, he always says that, like, it implies ownership of the world and also destruction of the world. But I think that the example that most com- readily comes to mind is a scene in Star Wars, like A New Hope, where... Alderaan is exploded, the planet Princess Leia is from while she watches, and so very literally her world exploded, and it doesn't imply her ownership of it, except in the sense that maybe she's a princess of it. That's never really defined. And I always feel that he's Okay, yes, I he's get it. You can a say little... the world that someone comes from yes, is their world. I just think that he's going, he's, and I, I think this is an interesting thing to point out in the way he's talking about this, is that when he's talking about science fictional language, it always ends up really heightened. Like, we're going to look for every science fictional meaning the sentence possibly could have. We're going to go as far as we can. So it's not just mm. her world in the sense of the world she's from, the way we might say her country. It has to be, like, you could say her country exploded in naturalistic fiction and science fiction. And we generally understand that doesn't imply she owned the country. Mm, I guess basically what you're saying is that a single person owning an entire world is an additional science fictional layer. And that he And you don't think it has to be. Yeah, there. and he, he addresses it as such. When he talks about this example, he tends to talk about the way in which, because it's science fiction, we're now looking for all the most outlandish or most interesting meanings that it can exist that can exist science fictionally. Um and I think that you know, I think he's slightly overstating it to make the point, but I always find it interesting that he does that. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, uh, would now be an okay time for me to talk about the the grammar here, about what he means, what what subjectivity, quote unquote, really means. Yeah, as a sure. Or, term. or often means, more usually means. Yeah. yeah. Well, well. So the the thing is that um, the the thing that Delaney is talking about here, the difference between like this could happen versus this couldn't happen versus this like hasn't happened it, all of these different kind of uh, grammatical constructions um they're not sub the the term that uh gr- that grammar uses for this is uh mode or mood um uh and so sub the subjunctive is a mood um and what this means is like there's a difference between let's say uh an, an indicative sentence which is like just a regular statement um you know uh, I went versus uh, an um, imperative sta- uh, sentence, which is like go. Um, you versus go might be a subjunct- way to communicate it. Like it's a command. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, or then another type of uh, use of a verb that you can have is the subjunctive, which refers to something that in some way isn't true or hasn't happened in a, in a vague way. The subjunctive is applied to a lot of different things in English. Um, and the subjunctive is the were in I wish that I were. Yeah, you or know, whatever. you should um, go or you would go or you might go. Well, none of those are actually technically, grammatically, the subjunctive is the thing that's complicated mm, yeah. about this. He's using the word subjunctive to refer to a bunch of things that are not actually the subjunctive. Um, I, I just say this because if you Google subjunctivity, um, you may not find anything that makes clear sense with Delaney's uh, mm. metaphor here. Um, because he is really talking about a metaphor. Like, it's not the case that every sentence of, of science fiction is written in the subjunctive. Because that, that would make no sense, right? That's, yeah. That would be like saying that every sentence of science fiction must be written in the future tense. Um, I mean, you'll find people who'd argue that's fundamentally true, even if it doesn't appear true, but it is very silly. Yeah, well, I anyway, this, this little side uh, trip into grammatical moods is um, not that important, but uh, I wanted to mention it because I, I find grammatical mood kind of interesting. <sighs> um, there's... There, there are a lot of languages that have a lot of moods that English doesn't have that basically express the truth content of the say of the statement in in different ways, um, and I think that's interesting. So yeah, yeah, no. Look, if you're like me, maybe go look up grammatical moods on <laughs> Wikipedia. I mean, it is very much you know, like we said, Delaney is very linguistic and very uh, language and grammar focused in the way he talks about science fiction. And he does have a bunch of other sort of examples that I think are useful here as well of other, you know, subjunctivities. And I do think there's a thing here where science fiction is closer to being subjunctive than natural fiction is. So subjunctivities is a very... I mean, on a subtle level, he's implying that the larger scope of literature, and he later states this outright, the larger scope of literature is science fictional and fantastical. It's not uh, given world fiction, which he considers to be a very narrow slice of the possible worlds of literature or of the, like, uh, genre spaces of literature. And so he gives a number of examples of um, subjunctivities, including... Uh, and these are all like subcategories of science fiction. Uh, so they're subcategories of, of events that have not happened. They're events that have not happened includes events that might happen. They're events that will not happen, which is how he defines science fantasy. You know, like Star Wars is an event that will not happen. Or like Star Trek uh, can often, when it has energy beings and so on, it will not happen. It's it's We're not going to run into these uh, energy beings a lot of people, I don't think that Star Trek is trying to be predictive or trying to be plausible in that way. It just wants to set up its story. Um, there's events that have not happened yet. And in his little parenthetical, can you hear the implied tone of warning? So that's the cautionary dystopia of 1984, things like that. Um, and then, of course, uh, he says, were English a language with a more detailed tense system? It would be easier to see that events that have not happened include past events as well as future ones. Events that have not happened in the past compose that SF speciality, the parallel world story, whose outstanding example is Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle. And here he is, in fact, referencing Philip K. Dick, one of the standard authors that literary critics who do science fiction want to reference. Ah. Yeah, yeah. 
But yes. It's not like Philip K. Dick is bad. No, no. It's not no. like talking about Philip K. Dick is not worthwhile. No, it's really useful. He is, in fact, extremely useful if you want to talk about weird language stuff in science fiction and all that. I just get a little bored of Dick. <laughs> Which Delaney yeah, never Yeah, now look, I... Uh... <sighs> I had to. I had to. He would uh, no, appreciate it. Yeah, one thing that's true about Delaney is that he's very open about his sex life. Um, he he wrote a memoir that is uh, called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, which is about the like public sex culture of Times Square among gay men in like the the sixties, seventies, eighties. It got a graphic novel adaptation, onward, but yeah, it's a it's a fascinating book. Yeah, um, no. I, I recommend it, but uh, it's not about science fiction, <laughs> really, at all. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, it's... it's. I was just going to say, he can write other things. In fact, he does a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I think we've basically worked our way through Delaney's argument here. We haven't discussed every single paragraph in the essay, because some of them are kind of, um, I, I would say, kind of detours. Or rather, from our perspective, they're detours, because he's writing about things like well, does he's he's focusing on questions like, well, does style matter? And that's really about like, what are we going to publish in these science fiction magazines? Well, yeah, know? it's definitely um, part of that—the ongoing argument about style. Because I do think that's worth talking about. Because you know, it's the history of science fiction is important to what we're talking about as well, and something that Delaney uh, discusses and that I think is um, is true is that there was this. There's a real push against style in science fiction. That's why he's writing this. That there's people will be like, oh, you see the blunt, straightforward, uh, uninteresting prose of this um, of this science fiction. That's just letting you get straight to the content. It's not getting in the way. I've seen people argue about this, this about a number of contemporary science fiction and fantasy authors of our time. That sure, they may not have style, but that's actually good. It's actually their lack of style is a real style. Um, and I've seen people argue that about Heinlein, Orson Scott Card, Delaney would never argue about Heinlein. He thinks Heinlein has a lot of style. But um, uh, Orson Scott Card, Brandon Sanderson uh, comes up in this sort of discussion where it's like, let's just get straight to the thing, to the content. And Delaney is planting his flag that this is a bad way of thinking about uh, writing. Yeah, he makes what I think is a basically accurate point, which is that, like, the, you know, this claim that... Um, straightforward or even unskilled uh, style in a piece of fiction allows you to kind of get to the uh, adventure and get to the things that the story is actually about that you're there to read. Uh, his point is that um, if you do want like a, a dramatic adventure story that will engage people in an emotional way and doesn't have to engage them in an intellectual way, intellectual way, um, well, it is the style, it is the kind of texture of the sentences that makes something a dramatic adventure, not just, like, the events that are narrated. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he says, The story of an infant's first toddle across the kitchen floor will be an adventure if the writer can generate the infantile wonder at new muscles, new efforts, obstacles, and detours. And that does sound like a science fiction story. As he says, I'd like to read such a story, and I feel the same way. Like, I'm imagining it like a... Uh, um, Xenofiction, but with you know, a kid? Yeah, exactly. Like, about an alien creature, like, make, taking its first steps in the, the bizarre world it lives in, and then you gradually realize over the course of the story that it's all this extremely alienating description of, like, a baby. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I think that that can absolutely be done well, and, you know, um, 
I think that uh, if it's done well, it will necessarily be good because that's what it means to say if it's done well. I'm always, yeah, no, it's, I'm always it's... a little bit skeptical of the like, and then we reveal the twist that that this is in fact a mundane event. Um, you can do it well. I think that very few authors are equipped to do it well. Delaney would be one of them. I could probably read that from Delaney and really enjoy it because it would be a wild time. Yeah, and also, like, I imagine when he says, I would like to read such a story. Well, okay, first of all, that he already specified that the style should effectively accomplish its task. So he is already kind of saying, I'd like to read it if it was good. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) But also, I don't know that he necessarily means it would be excellent. I would enjoy it thoroughly for sure. And more like, yeah, I'd like to see this experiment. Yeah, Um, yeah. No, and I think that, uh, I think... Delaney has a lot of interest in the experiment, and I think that's really good. Um, And also, I think there's a certain way in which he's also pushing back against the idea that the high-level description of a work, uh, the sort of, like, you know, the the content, the, um, in science fiction, you might say, the the conceit or, like, the idea is really what makes it good. And I can definitely think of having read works of science fiction where the idea was something that excited me to hear about, and the execution left me very cold. Yeah, yeah, no, that certainly happens. Um, and he's, there's a lot sorry, of there's a lot of high concept science fiction, like um, you know, that's like high yeah. concept is when something has that type of uh, you know when you can say it's a story about describing uh, a baby's first steps as if it were an alien. That's yeah. the high concept. Yeah, and it's you know it's not just uh, the question of high concept, even if it's a low concept, like if it's just like a this is a you know science fiction story about like military science fiction involves these elements that's often how people like sell you on science fiction stories they talk about oh yeah this has oh they maybe this has they tell you about a little checklist of what is in it yeah or i mean to be clear i i'm not trying to exclusively make fun of people who will try to recommend a book by telling you a list of ao3 tropes because i think you know in 1956 people would try to recommend a book to you by telling you what like type of cool technology was in it and that's not a I fundamentally mean, different urge i was but... going to reference a thing that is an let's say an ongoing thing in science fiction right now is uh the way books get blurbed uh i'm sure you've heard of the way that uh, gideon the ninth gets blurbed as it has lesbian necromancers in it in space what more do you need to know it's like You've told me literally nothing about why I should read this book. You have only told me a little checklist of things, and everything I hear about the book says that checklist is incredibly useless for describing the tone, the flavor, the kind of plot, all of this, the kind of things that, you know, actually shape the reading experience, because Lesbian Necromancers in Space sounds like an adventure romp, possibly a fun one, and apparently it's a like, deeply distressing murder mystery about, like, intrigue and emotional fucked-upness, which is not a bad thing, but is not what that description tells you. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, This is me specifically complaining about how Charles Strauss blurbed a book I haven't read, so this is incredibly petty of me, but I think it's a really good example of how this translates into the modern day. The fact that this, like, uh, you know, like you said, in the Golden Age, it's like, this is about this technology. Another example of this in sort of the reverse is someone saying about the fifth season um, and N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy in general, 
oh, well, I don't think it really deserves all this praise. I mean, we've had uh, people with the psychic power to uh, to control earthquakes before. That was done in a short story by, like, Cordwainer Smith in 1942 or something. I don't remember the specific example, but it was just like, you couldn't miss the point of why people recommend these books harder if you just fell off the planet. It's... <laughs> It's literally impossible to start explaining how stupid of a criticism that is. Okay, as far as, like, engaging with criticism and, and like, giving our, our uh, <laughs> responses to it, instead of responding to stupid criticisms no, from anonymous no, you're, people you're... whose names we can't remember... <sighs> I just say I, I... Delaney's complaint continues to be relevant. That's all I'm saying. Yes. So, I mean, what do you think about, like... Delaney's argument here. What do you think about the idea of science fiction as a a level of subjectivity? I think it's really useful. I don't always agree with it. In fact, I I think there's certain ways in which the the metaphor of a grammatical mood uh, falls apart. I'm not quite as purely linguistic as Delaney is. And in fact, my example is science fantasy, which I think he doesn't do a very good job of accounting for here, which is why I made a special point of it. Because he says about fantasy, and I think this is a really useful little detail of his subjectivities, and for seeing why the, the verbal and grammatical is maybe complicated, he says, um, and let me quote, Fantasy takes the subjunctivity of naturalistic fiction and throws it into reverse, at the appearance of elves, witches, or magic in a non-metaphorical position, or at some correction of image too bizarre to be explained by other than the supernatural. And we should talk about correction of image in a second. Uh, the level of subjunctivity becomes could not have happened, and immediately it informs all the world words in the series. I almost said worlds in the series, which is not what I meant. All the words in the series. No matter how naturalistic the setting, once the witch has taken off on her broomstick, the most realistic of trees, cats, night clouds, or the moon behind them become infected with this reverse subjunctivity. And that's a really great paragraph. It's really effective, and it's really, I mean, it's fantastic in the, in the, meta, in the metaphorical or the, the, the whatever sense. Um, because he's saying, once you establish this as fantasy, all the rules go out the window, or at least we've changed the rules. Everything has changed. That cat might talk. Those trees might have a spirit. You've changed what it means as soon as you say it's fantasy. And I agree, that's totally true, but it's not irreversible, the way he describes it. And you can have two going on at once. For example, if you then reveal that that witch's broomstick has some kind of mechanical explanation, like there's a powerful magnet in it, or there's jets in the, you know, or any number of those books from, like, the, the 80s onwards where someone tries to, you know, like, uh, a flight, The Flight of Dragons, which tries to biologically explain how you could theoretically have a biologically possible dragon. That's the genre of science fantasy, where you've explained the fantastical elements in the plot and the, the fantastical figures via some kind of science fictional excuse, which is usually not very sophisticated or, like, true. Like, you probably can't actually build a biological dragon— but it's enough that the reader goes, okay, we're still working by science fictional rules, but also dragons and wizards are going to show up. And I think that that sort of mixed mode doesn't really fit into the, into the subjunctivities model, but a lot else does. And subjunctivity is really useful for describing the way that science fiction adheres not just to the, you know, the objects in a thing, but to the mood of it, to the way it's operating. Here's a an idea that I'm throwing out here <clears throat> that, you know, that just occurred to me. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have a lot of weight to back this up, but 
what if one considered science fantasy and maybe other genres or other works as um, having different uh, subjunctivities for different sentences or different parts of the narrative? I think that's interesting, and I'm not sure how Delaney would take it because... Uh, because he's very much of the opinion that the the thing is a whole. Like, his model of subjectivity is pretty holistic. He talks about how, um, mm. you know, it informs all the words in the series. Not every word you're yet to read, but every word in the collection of words. Because meaning, for Delaney, cannot adhere to a single word. And, you know, his model of corrections is linear, in a certain sense, and it's constant. We should probably talk about corrections now if we want to actually make sense of what we're saying. Oh. Yeah, that's a good idea. So he has this idea that, you know, I think we mentioned that uh, he, he suggests that each word in the in in a piece of fiction, each each word in a piece of writing. Really, yeah, each word in um, series. Yeah, produces a, an image in your head. Um, and it's it's specifically like the first word gives you some kind of image. Even the word the, he believes, produces a, a very We need vague... to talk about his the. It's so good. But yes. Yeah. Let's, um, start, with, let's start with dog. But... Yeah, so so there's that. And then uh, the, like, each subsequent word corrects your image in that it, like, gives you more information about what you're actually supposed to be picturing here. Um, so the sentence that he goes through starts the, and then the next word is red. So now our, our vague the image has turned red. Okay, um, and he, he specifically, as part of this model, describes his the... Uh, he says that my own unmodified, rather whimsical the is a grayish ellipsoid about four feet high that balances on the floor perhaps a yard away. Yours is no doubt different. So Mark, what is your the? I just don't have this. I don't have straight up aphantasia, but like picturing something in my mind does take me effort. So when I am reading a book, I do not have pictures in my head in the way that Delaney is talking about. The way that I conceive of the you know the information or the the picture or whatever it is that i'm receiving from a book although mm, the idea that i'm passively receiving information from a book is not yeah yeah we we don't need to get into that but yeah yeah the way you're interpreting but but what whatever it is that i'm having in my mind in my uh head is not a picture that is increasingly corrected it is i mean it almost i would say is more like uh I don't know. I suppose it is schematic. Yeah, um, no, I... I sorry. I don't know how to describe this. No, I don't, I don't think you have an obligation to, but I think it's worth thinking about. I, I invite our readers, our listeners, whatever, to think about this. To think about, like, when you start a sentence, what is the actual process going on word by word? Because you... We do read more or less linearly. Now, that's that's not entirely true. We often, uh, our eyes flick forward on the page so that we have a vague sense of the, the words that are coming. Or, you know, depends on the reader. Some people do read very word by word. And I suspect Delaney has a certain discipline, because, you know, obvious, and I suspect his dyslexia is also involved in this, where he does go very word by word, while at the same time being this, like, incredibly linguistic person, incredibly interested in fitting these things together, but I think that Delaney would not skip forward half a page, like, you know, in a for a moment to see what's coming up, even unconsciously, because that's not the kind of reader he is. And it's worth thinking about how you even read in that way. 
But yeah, I am, I'm a pretty visual person. I tend to imagine, uh, you know, sort of visual scenes, but most of the time I don't necessarily go into full, I don't necessarily kick it off all the way. Whereas Delaney is incredibly visual. Like the way he describes his corrections are not just like starting with the visual the, I, I don't know what my the looks like. Um, but as he goes through the sentence and the sentence he's talking about here is, uh, do you think we should just read the sentence off and then go back and talk about the corrections or do we want to go through word by word? No, let's let's read the whole sentence. I think we can give yeah. that to our listeners. We're summarizing and all yeah, that yeah. stuff. So the, so the sentence, the sentence. He, go, oh, go on. No, no, you go ahead. So the sentence that he is discussing, that uh, word that he goes through word by word to see how it constructs itself, is the red sun is high, the blue low. Yeah, um, and so this is a science fictional sentence. Like this is part of his argument that this sentence cannot be interpreted in a naturalistic fiction way. You cannot be in the world we know of daily experience and make this sentence work. And he also thinks that it's not a very good fantasy sentence, or at least if it is a fantasy sentence, we can't do much with it. Uh, he has a great line here, which is, As fantasy, one suspects that the red sun is the realer one, but what sorcerer, to what purpose, shunted up that second azure orb, we cannot know, and must wait for the rest of the tale. And I think that's reasonable. It's, you know, if this is the starting point of a fantasy story, we don't yet know the rules by which a blue sun may have been raised, or if it's just how the world is. But he also goes into such a style there to communicate his sense of fantasy, and it's like, uh, Michael Moorcock, uh, you know, sword and sorcery. Um, I just love what sorcerer, to what purpose, shunted up that second azure orb. I love it. I love it so yeah. much. It's pretty good. Yeah. I want to be a little bit of a, uh, let's say, um, I want to be a little contrary. Yeah. Um, and point out that I don't think it's too difficult to imagine in a piece of naturalistic fiction, something going on with like, um, uh, like light being refracted through a lens, uh, someone doing something weird with film photography that would result in two images of the sun, one of which is somehow blue. Um, I think that's true. And this but... is just me. Hmm. This is just me being a little bit of a pill about it. <laughs> I don't think that the sentence, I don't think that the sentence, the red sun is high, the blue low is likely to appear in naturalistic fiction. Um, but I bring it up I just to say I'm not actually sure that Delaney's claim that sentences on their own can be indelibly science fictional is accurate. And I also think that this sort of backdoor where really any sentence can be fantastical as he defines it, I think that also kind of like wobbles his theory a bit. I mean, I think it is fair to say, and let's let's take the weaker f version of Delaney's statement, like the less less extravagant claim. This is a sentence that pushes us towards the science fictional mood aggressively and quickly. It mm. has a... It is easiest to interpret science fictionally. Fantasy, it is perfectly plausible. It's a, it's a sentence that fits into fantasy with no issue whatsoever, but requires us to suspend a certain amount of judgment. We are waiting for the fantastical explanation. Whereas in science fiction, we can already start making sense of the sentence... And I think that basically the way you described backdooring it into naturalistic fiction is more or less in the same category as fantasy, in the sense that the explanation has to be so intentionally askew from the thing described. Like, for a really cheap answer, 
this could be a description of a scene in a movie that is science fictional that is being watched in a realistic fiction novel that starts off by people watching it like or you start on the set of a science fiction thing but all of this requires that reality be intentionally distorted whether through a lens you used a number of technological examples it's distorted away from everyday experience such that something is really required but science fiction can immediately incorporate this sentence and not only that but it gives you a bunch more information about the place you are and Delaney maybe overstates this. The the sentence I want to quote from him here is, Look, we are worlds and worlds away. The first sun is huge, and how accurate the description of its color turns out to have been. The repetition that predicted mannerism now fixes both big and little sun to the sky. The landscape crawls with long red shadows and stubby blue ones, joined by purple triangles. Look at the speaker himself. Can you see him yet? You have seen his doubled shadow. And here's the thing. I absolutely do not see doubled shadows when I imagine a world with two suns. I am not sufficiently Delaney and sufficiently rigorous to immediately imagine not just that there are two shadows on everything and that everything is tinted purple, but the specific intersection of the red and blue shadows that creates the purple triangle. I understand all of this, and once he details it, it is very strongly in my mind, but I do not have quite the incredible visual correction apparatus that Delaney brings to everything. And I think that is kind of... The weakness here is that Delaney is an incredible visual reader. His way of reading is like acrobatics where we're all stuck climbing. I will say, though, I think that part of Delaney's style as a critic is to state his claims in the most dramatic and interesting way possible. Um, yeah. So as he describes these, like, picture corrections and and gives you this sort of, like, dizzying experience of a double-sun world, um, I do think that he's conscious of the fact that many readers are not going to have this detailed of an experience. I mean, he says, Though it ordinarily takes only a quarter of a second and is largely unconscious... This is the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, you're you're right. It and, is rhetorical. Yeah. Um, and I also think that uh, one thing that I do think I experience is the uh, excitement that he clearly is communicating here mm. when when a piece of writing reaches a point where I'm like, oh, that has to be science fictional. That is a new idea to me. Um. That is something that, when I picture it, it's something I haven't pictured before. Uh, we have become um, estranged. Like, yes, and I think that that is in the sentence, the red sun is high, the blue low. Yeah. Um, it's also in the door dilated, which is another sentence he uses. Yeah, um, yeah. He actually, this is, um, oh, we haven't always cited this, but this is on page 13 of um, The Jewel Hinged Jaw, which is the book in which this essay appears. <laughs> I don't think we've said that yet either. No, no. It's uh, a, The Jewel Hinged Jaw um, notes on the language of science fiction. And I do love that. Um, like, that is itself, The Jewel Hinged Jaw is like uh, The Red Sun is High, The bl- uh, Blue Low, a sentence that immediately estranges, that creates that sense of this is a different world from ours. And I do, in fact, have a visual image of a jewel-hinged jaw that always comes to mind when I read the title, in which I've been trying to figure out exactly how it should look. So, nice. you know, well uh, we done, should... Delaney. We, we should also mention, just for anyone who is trying to look up uh, this essay, that uh, this specific... Um edition we're working with is the 2009 Wesleyan edition. 
it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to find the 1978 edition, but you know. Yeah, yeah, no, the revised be edition is more likely. I, I suspect that if our readers want to look this essay up, they will probably be able to find it in PDF form on the internet. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I think we can say as a general rule that most of these books are probably available on the internet somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I have a clever trick with the library to get a lot of <laughs> academic books. Um, <sighs> but, uh, it's, it's that, um, the New York public library, which I'm a member of has, uh, like subscriptions to some databases and some databases have entire academic books in them. Yep. Uh, and you can sometimes download them as PDFs. Uh, but t typically you can only download one chapter at a time. Um, so it can be inconvenient mm -hmm. unless you have the time to download all the chapters and stitch them together into a single PDF. Yeah, yeah. Or if it's a separate, uh, a separate collection of essays, in which case one chapter is just a complete paper. Anyways, The Door yes. Dilated is, uh, it's a Heinlein line, and it's a classic. Harlan Ellison, I think, identified it as, like, this great science fictional move, and Generally, Delaney has an interesting yeah. relationship with Heinlein, because Heinlein is um, one of the straightest, whitest men of the Golden Age, I'll put it that way. Um, he's got some truly weird politics, uh, goes all over the place, is a contrarian, does all this sort of thing. But Heinlein also, in Delaney's pers uh, opinion, introduces a number of the core rhetorical and linguistic tricks of science fiction that enliven the genre and allow it to create its own style. So... Uh, Delaney on Heinlein is a really interesting read. He's got a, a little essay on this in uh, the Jewel Hinge. Not, no, not the Jewel Hinge Jaw, in Starboard Wine, the collection. But in any case... Yeah, I think Starboard Wine is where they put um, not every single one, but a lot of his essays on specific works by specific yeah, authors that's a large, in Starboard Wine. Yeah, a large chunk of it is these short essays on particular authors juxtaposed with uh, essays uh, about the sort of general ideas uh, that connect with it. Which, now that I think about it, is very much the kind of thing I want to do with this podcast. So, um, Delaney wins again. Delaney <laughs> wins again. Yeah, no. We are clearly heavily Delaney-influenced. Yeah, um, but... You know, also, actually, I want to mention, speaking of the types of things that are collected in Starboard Wine, um, one interesting thing about this uh, sort of, you know, levels of subjunctivity, science fictional language, um, mm -hmm. you know, no division between content and style, the, the whole argument made in this essay. Um, Delaney goes on to develop that argument, use it for different purposes, uh, modify it, um, etc. Uh, and so it comes up a lot in Starboard Wine. I actually think more than it does in <laughs> the other essays in the Jewel Hinge Jaw. Oh, I um, believe it. I would say probably, probably because... Starboard wine is a little more of a, um, like a little more of a, a hodgepodge, I think. Um, and so because Starboard wine has more of the essays that are kind of focused in on a particular thing that don't themselves seem to be big theoretical statements, those are the essays where he then goes on and applies these ideas. And every single time he applies them, he does something new with them. So it's, it's worthwhile, if you like this idea and you think it's interesting, to go and read other essays uh, in Starboard Wine or, or some of the other essays in The Jewel Hinged Jaw, um, where he continues to talk about it and takes it to new places. 
Um, but that's a little beyond the scope of this podcast right now. Yeah. No. Uh, it is. Also, I do want to go back to uh, his the. Yes. Delaney's the, which I am now imagining, you know, this this grayish uh, ellipsoid sitting on the floor a little ways away from where I'm recording this. So uh, Delaney's yeah, the Yeah, do you is have now... a specific spot on the floor where you're imagining it? Cause yeah, I do. yeah, no, it's it's right there. It's, it's, it's sort of resenting me. I, I feel threatened by yeah. Delaney's the, and it's... It's probably just because I don't feel like I have a the to set against it. So it's just sort of sitting there. Yeah, no, Delaney's the has clearly uh, taken over whatever space either of our own natural thes might have uh, I mean, occupied. sort of. The thing is, I, I don't think I see Delaney's the when I read a sentence that begins with the, even even momentarily. Although, wow, that's a... Now I'm, now I'm haunted by the concept that I'm constantly subconsciously evoking Delaney's the... Maybe it's moving slowly towards me. I love. I also love that he specifies <laughs> that uh, my A, for example, as in, you know, A as in an apple rather than the apple, for example, differs from my the in that it is about the same shape and color, a bit paler perhaps, but is either much farther away or much smaller and nearer. In either case, I'm going to be either much less or much more interested in it than I am in the. And I'm just imagining all of these articles sitting around Delaney's apartment or wherever, or, like, following him down the street. <laughs> uh, Delaney's Pokemon team of grammatical constructs. God. Uh, um, so, and he, you know, I, he talks about this with we, words other than the as well. Like, what your generic yes, dog yes. is, if you just hear the word dog. And I wanted to bring up dog because he also brings up winged dog, which is one of his examples of a term that, uh, you know, just immediately pushes you into this particular way of thinking. And again, he has this sense of the reading practice of science fiction. I think this is something that we will want to return to in the future. So I want to bring it up as something that uh, the correction is not just visual, but also involves a bunch of other skills or ideas. He has this idea that, um, and he brings this up with some of his other examples of science fictional language and other works, that science fiction requires a body of knowledge, that a science fiction reader has some collection of scientific knowledge, either, you know, sort of illusory, that is, you get it from other science fiction works, it's not necessarily accurate, or accurate, and that you are applying this as part of your corrections once you're thinking science fictionally. So, for example, uh, at the subjunctive level of SF, however, one must momentarily consider, as one makes that visual correction to a winged dog from dog, an entire track of evolution. Whether the dog has four legs or not, the visual correction must include modification of breastbone and musculature if the wings are to be functional, as well as a whole slew of other factors from hollow bones to heart rate. Or if we subsequently learn as the series of words goes on, that grafting was the cause, there are all the implications to consider of a technology capable of such an operation. All of this information hovers tacitly about and between those two words, in the same manner that the information, and he goes on to talk about, like, given world examples about the implication of things. And I'm, this is one place where I also think I disagree a bit with Delaney, which is that I think for a lot of readers of science fiction, there's much more acceptance of statement than there is 
uh, sort of quizzical reconstruction. I think most people's winged dog does not correct to the technologies required for it, or the, or especially the musculature and, like, reconstruction of the dog as a whole. I think people are prone to gluing wings onto a dog and accepting that and waiting for an explanation, believing one will be coming. Yeah. Like, uh, it, it, it makes me think of, um, like, the way that, um, when it comes to, you know, uh, like, mecha fiction. Yeah, You yeah. have these huge person-shaped robots fighting. And I love uh, them. And, like, yeah, yeah, but, like, uh, we are just not interested in the square cube law, you know? Yeah. Like, no one wants, no one cares, that, like, theoretically, these things should have real trouble, like, lifting their own weight or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, no, um, or especially with, like, kaiju or things where it's supposed to be biological. But yeah, that they're, and that's actually a great example. Godzilla and, implies a bunch of things that Winged Dog also implies in terms of what makes it biologically possible, and we don't care. Or even, like, sometimes we, I mean, with Godzilla, Ben, we very much do care in that there is an ideology of Godzilla, like... There's a reason Godzilla came to be in this Oh, sure, but, way. like, it's not as um, though and you hear, uh, you know, 50-story uh, lizard monster um, that you immediately go, well, okay, its legs must be huge and full of bone to support its uh, massive weight, um, which I'm taking from an SNBC no. comic. We don't actually want that. We want the story. We want the, we want the style in a different way. And so that idea of does the dog have four legs or not might come up or like does the dog have hollow bones is this dog viable i think most people would rather just just take for granted if you tell me there's a winged dog in a science fiction story i believe the winged dog is possible i do think that there might be a certain curiosity about what technology led oh, to this no, but i, I think, think the curiosity true. i don't think people would be taking into consideration the degree of like I guess you could call it realism yeah, uh, yeah. that Delaney is interested in here. Like, I think people might be like, wow, how did the dog become winged? Is it grafting? Is it uh, genetic engineering? Yeah, like, yeah. People wonder about those things, but they don't wonder how could genetic engineering possibly create a functional uh, winged you know, dog. A six limbed. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, exactly. It, absolutely. You can just say, I've genetically engineered or I've grafted a, I've grafted together a winged dog, and that is the point at which most people will go, cool, I understand the explanation now. There's a, a joke on something I saw, which is that uh, people, adults especially reading, tend to ask why only once or twice. So if you give them an explanation, like, how can we go fast in life in Star Trek, light in Star Trek? Oh, dilithium crystals. Cool. That is a solution. That is an answer. Whereas, in fact, all it is said is, we have a word that answers this question. And I don't think Star Trek needs more than that. I think it would, in fact, be worse. Uh, it... But it certainly has been. I, I think know, Star Trek is I... a really bad example for this. Listen, oh, well, the, okay. average li the average viewer, I keep saying the wrong con method of media absorption. Uh, the average viewer of Star Trek is not the person asking, well, why do the dilithium crystals let you go faster than light and go to warp speed? Instead, they just accept that the dilithium crystals are necessary to go to warp speed, presumably by analogy to, like, nitrous oxide in your car or something, and we move on. Yeah, no, um... And then nerds are the people who can't. Um... Anyways, like I said, I don't know what... 
uh, what nitro injectors actually use or do, because I just accepted when I was told it injects nitro, or what I remembered as nitrous oxide, into an engine, and that makes it go faster. I had some vague sense of how that works, and I accepted it, and I moved on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think it's interesting that a lot of, uh, a, a decent number of works of science fiction, like Star Trek, but Star Trek is not the only example, um, have this kind of, like, multi-layered level of explanation, where, like, there is some sort of detailed, um, you know, uh, multi-step techno-babble explanation for what's happening here. Um, obviously, ultimately, no matter how quote-unquote hard a piece of science fiction is, there's some point where it can't explain anymore, right? There's some point where something has been made up. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, I think it's interesting that there are works where, um, there are works where the detail of that explanation is, like, central to the genre and part of what people enjoy about it, and there are works where it is a little more, um, almost... I don't know, perfunctory? <laughs> that seems like an interesting contrast. Yep. I don't have an immediate point to make, yep. but... I have looked it up. It's nitromethane, ni not nitrous oxide. I made a mistake. I heard nitro and okay. thought I understood. <sighs> well, that's fine. I, uh... I think we have demonstrated your point. <laughs> yeah, un un unintentionally, but yes. Um, so yeah, I think... So yeah, there's some there's some questions one can have about whether he's accurately describing the average reading experience, whether his doctrine of corrections is really how reading works. And I do think that he is focusing on a visual aspect. I do think he uses a visual logic for science fiction that is not necessarily, you, know, you use the term schematic, I might use the term, uh, you know, verbal, or uh, ironically, given how linguistically focused he is, but he sees... Uh, words as a means to images. He sees the fundamental nature of language as producing images that are then modified, at least in the context of fiction or uh, prose fiction. Yeah, he uses, he uses that term sound image. Yes. And I'm not sure that I agree that that is the fundamental way in which I read. And so that also means that this doctrine of corrections, I keep calling it a doctrine, which is maybe a little unfair, this model of corrections is something I'm a little skeptical of, but I do think it's really useful for thinking about uh, about the way that a reader absorbs information bit by bit, about the linearity of text and the way that you're shaping and changing and developing things. I'm just not sure I would frame it as, like, like it's almost like you have clay. You have the the, which is, again, sitting on the floor near you, and then you shape it and mix colors into it, and slowly you develop this entire world uh out of little objects made from this the. And I think it's a really cool image, I think it's a really cool idea, and I think it has some interesting implications, but I'm a little skeptical that this is really how reading works, that it doesn't involve more uh, interpolation and intercorrelation between distinct and separate parts of the text, and sort of returning to things in your mind, and sort of read or or even losing track of some things, and things sort of fade out and in in various ways which the correction model doesn't feel... Like, if it's one object, almost a physical object, that you're correcting into the final version, that feels like... That almost feels like too much to hold in your mind. Like, you'd have to hold the entire text in your mind to have corrected it correctly. Whereas if it's a thing in front of you that's changing and being shaped by things, but not so much... Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I definitely get what you're saying. Um, I, 
I think, I don't know, I think it's complicated. Like No, I think the, it is. Because I, I don't think Delaney can possibly intend the idea that by the time you get to the end of a novel, you remember every single word you've heard and, like, your, your mind picture has been, like, fully inflected by every word you read. Or, I don't know. I mean, that it's, might it's be an, how he describes it, the ideal reader. Well, sure. Um, I, I, it's just, I, I feel in certain ways it would be unfair to criticize him on the details of, like, psychological reality, because that's not really what he's writing about, I mean, right? He's no, writing about, like, he's, literary theory. If he's making his argument about how correction works, if he's the only, like, I'm not saying this is true. If he were the only person who read via this cor these corrections, it would be really interesting, but not very useful as criticism. It's the similarity to our reading practices that he can that we can identify and that are meaningful that matter to whether it changes how we read things or how we write things. So I do think that he is making a claim about human experience, and I think that claim is not yeah. certainly not totally untrue. No, no, he totally is making a claim about human experience. It's just uh. Uh, I, I think it's important not to get completely bogged down in, like, it's important to read this as, 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 as theory, as, um, analysis, and not as, like, something that it's not. That's all. No, absolutely. Um, all I'm saying is that I think that that analysis, and, you know, I'm a bit of a stickler for this, I think that the ways in which, let's say, metaphor or theoretical construct, uh, diverges from the real world shapes how that theory is used. So... I'm not saying that this invalidates it. I'm just saying that this is something worth thinking about if you want to apply it. Yeah. Um, I want to mention, by the way, uh, I also think that to some extent um, Delaney kind of responds to this, in part through discussing his experience as a teacher. We didn't mention at all that mm. he's like a professor. That, um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, He also mentions uh, being a teacher in... About 5,750 words, actually, uh, pretty early on when he talks about how style affects readers. So it's definitely something that's informing this essay. Mm, that's true, yes. Um, and he, he talks about it often in other works as well. And that allows him to go into details on how people read because he has access to a bunch of readers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Look, Delaney's good and he's got a... I really don't mean by criticizing this model to say that Delaney doesn't know what he's talking about. That's far from the far from my intention. I, I just wanted to point yeah, out some places where I have I have my issues with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, um, just a very fun footnote that I want to very briefly mention is that he says, words also have phonic presence or voice as well as meaning. And certainly all writers must work with sound to vary the rhythm or a, fra or a phrase or a sentence, as well as to control the meaning. But this discussion is going to veer close enough to poetry. To consider the musical as well as the ritual value of language in SF would make poetry and prose indistinguishable. That is absolutely not my intention. It's just like, um, is it not? Or would this not apply to poetry? Does this model not apply to poetry? Is it just that you don't write poetry so you feel you can't comment on it? Like, it's such an odd footnote. And it's fascinating to think about his linguistic interest in science fiction and its relation to poetry. I also think that the way he throws in the word ritual there Oh, yeah. Kind of oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Like... There's... I think there's only like there's only a few footnotes in this one and all of them are absolutely wild. Like these are he makes these huge claims in the the story in the, the essay itself and then he has the footnotes where every claim he makes in a footnote is wilder than any given claim in the essay. 
Yeah. Like, uh, there's the one where he's like, I can't mention symbol here because that's going to require far too much vocabulary and far too much complexity, just implying that there's a whole discourse he's submerged here. And then secondly, it's, uh, well, I'm not going to bring poetry in because poetry would be too much. And then the third footnote is where he says, uh, Consider, naturalistic fictions are parallel world stories in which the divergence from the real is too slight for historical verification. Just... Okay? <laughs> yeah, sure. technically, actually, all fiction is science fiction. I mean, look, we're going to keep talking about that idea in future episodes. But, oh, yeah. Uh, no. Probably not today. But he argues that if you look at his theory of subjectivities, naturalistic fiction subjectivity of this could have happened is actually just a subcategory of this has not happened. And, like, the way he's framed it, he is perfectly correct, and that's wild. Honestly, that's yes, that's one yes, reason why I think it can be really worth looking at science fiction studies. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it's worth it. I've devoted way too much of my life to it. But uh, even if you're, like, not super interested in what makes science fiction science fiction... It does end up producing a really interesting way of looking at literature in general because it's looking at it from the science fictional perspective, from the fantasy perspective, from outside of the traditional models, and from a, you know, a, a genre that is historically, in its relatively short history, um, as, an, as a, like, self-regulated genre, um, has been an outside genre, has been a, a pulp genre, has been a kind of a, a low, uh, a, you know, a low art genre in a lot of ways but has produced some really influential and interesting works that are now, and has become more and more influential over time, so it's built up this way of looking at things from the outside in, in certain ways. Not like as much as some other genres or literatures, but I think it's an interesting aspect of science fiction studies. Yeah, I agree. Um, I feel like that might be a good place to end. You've just sort of justified our podcast. <laughs> Have um, I? Yeah. I mean, look, we were going to make the podcast anyway, so. Yeah. Um, <sighs> oh, I do actually, there's a there's a wonderful phrase he uses at the end that I want to mention, which is, any serious discussion of speculative fiction must first get away from the distracting concept of SF content and examine precisely what sort of word beast sits before us. So, you know, yes. I hope everyone's having a good time with their word beasts. Oh my god, it's uh, the the. It's the the. Maybe that's... Oh no, oh god, yes, you're right. We have to wrestle the the. That's terrifying. <laughs> okay, we're gonna go um, wrestle the the. Okay. Thank you for uh, listening. Good. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> oh, we need a sign-off. Bye. This is Mark, just a bit later, um, here to add that you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Blunt, and co-host at VenDiagram, and you can find Ben at Silk and Stone on Twitter. Ben also has an Itch.io page for his tabletop games, which is at silk-stone.itch.io, where you can get his short Dark Souls item description-inspired game Exiles, and you can look up for his upcoming science fiction game about amnesia and solving mysteries. Detect or die. Discover who you were. Decide who you are. Coming summer 2023. And, finally, I am a member of a trans and gender expansive chorus called Transcend, and I would love it if you could buy a ticket for our upcoming Pride performance. It's at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on June 18th at St. John's in the Village in New York City, but... Non-New Yorkers, don't worry, remote tickets are available, and you can purchase them at tix.muse.me.pride. Uh, 
That's T-I-X dot M-U-S-A-E dot M-E slash pride. Thank you for listening. <laughs>